1: He says, but these guys will come into those feasts and they will pretend like they're something. They'll feign themselves as shepherds, but instead of feeding the sheep, they are only concerned about their own selves, feeding themselves and ripping them off. And the Bible says that we are not to fellowship with those who are enemies of the cross and yet feigning to be a believer, and especially someone who claims to be a believer, but who is an outright rebellion against God and his word. Oh
0: Today on Truth in Christ, our scripture says, These are spots in your love fest. Welcome everyone to our Bible study for today. The early Christians often met for a common meal, something like a potluck dinner. They called these meals love fests or agape fests. When these certain men came that Jude talks about, they were serving only themselves They ate greedily at the love fests while others went hungry. The selfishness of these certain men spoiled the fellowship. Even today, it always spoils fellowship when we come to church with a selfish, bless-me attitude. And now let's join Pastor Rob with today's message. We
1: know that in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that God buried Moses. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse 5, So Moses and the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. God buried him. And how did he do that? He, evidently, he had Michael the archangel involved in this, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth but no one knows his grave to this day. And perhaps the reason for that is Satan wanted to do something diabolical with Moses' body maybe he wanted to have Moses lie in state for the rest of his days you remember what happened with the, the children of israel with gideon and the ephod that he had made it became a fetish for them it became something that it, it became something that they began to worship until he had to destroy the thing and think of what would, happen if they would have if happened if the devil would have had his way and did something, maybe had Moses' body lie in state, and certainly the children of Israel would have said, hey, that's a great idea, he is, after all, a great leader. But wouldn't it cause them to stumble? Because they would come around, it would probably be something they'd do every, every month, every year, they'd come and they'd worship at the feet of their, of, their, of their Savior, the one who brought them out of Egypt, and God says, I'll have none of that. I am the one who brought them out. I'll give my glory to no man. And although Moses is in glory, God does not share his glory. So God physically buried Moses through the hand of Michael. And evidently there was some squirmish uh, with him and the devil. But I you know I don't really subscribe to the practice of some that you know they you know even you know Michael he he didn't dare bring an accusation against the devil you know he just said the Lord rebuke you you know and I don't necessarily actually I don't subscribe to those Christians who make a habit of yelling at the devil screaming at him marching around their house and and acting like they, you know, in in Christ we have all power with him within us, but we ought not to think that we can match and go toe-to-toe with the devil apart from Christ. In fact, it's better that we just leave him alone and let God deal with him, but there are those who think that they can push him around and poke their finger in his chest like he's some insignificant angel. We don't want to give the devil more credit than he's due, but you know what the Bible says that we ought not to... Be doing those things. We see this in this verse that we don't speak evil of dignitaries. We don't. We don't like him. We we we, we don't like him at all. But I don't think it really matters to him. I think he laughs when Christians, you know, push him around like he's nothing. And I think he laughs when the Muslims on for the Hajj or however you pronounce it, the Hajj, whatever Hajj. That five every five years they they go to Mecca in Medina, and they throw stones at the devil, and I think he laughs all the time at that. And then people, even well-meaning Christians, it's better that we just leave him alone and let God deal with him. After all, I don't really want to have any dealings with him. He's had enough of my life. Has he had enough of yours? Before you came to Christ? And even now, he can't take your salvation. He may be messing with you. He may be making your life more difficult, but he can't take away what God has given to you salvation. He can't take that away, but he can mess with you and he can make, he can tarnish your witness. He can make you feel horrible, but he can't take that away. Nothing can take that away. But these, they speak evil of what they do not know. And whatever they know, like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. And this is just gross ignorance. You know, it is very common for the natural man to be afraid of or to hate that which is unknown or that which is not understood. That's true. People fear what they don't know. That's why we fear the future. We don't know the future in its minutia. We know the big things. The Bible tells us these things. Thank God. Can you imagine not being a Christian today? I don't know how unbelievers do it, because they have no faith, they have no hope, and they think what we believe. They don't even know what we believe. They see the world and the the place where it's going. I mean, if I was a believer, I'd be drinking too. If I was an unbeliever, because what other solace is there? How important it is for us to tell them of the truth. I don't know about you, but that settles me, knowing what he's shown with us already. We know the big picture, right? But the little details between here and there were kinda we don't know. But we know the big picture. You know, and sometimes, you know, we think that we know something really well, or maybe we have experience in something when and when we we think we know it all and we really don't. We have some experience, but yet we puff our chests up like we're something and and yet there's always more to learn, isn't there? There's always more to learn. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Notice these three things. The first one is they've gone in the way of Cain. The second thing is, is these apostates, these dreamers, they've ran greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet. And finally, Jude's condemnation of them is so great, he speaks of it in the past tense. And they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. So, what was the way of Cain? You know, in Genesis 4, it talks about the rebellion of Cain, his disobedience. He knew what God, what his standard was, and how he was to be approached in worship. And his brother Abel had it down. He brought a lamb and he sacrificed it. It was a bloody mess. And God received that offering. But then Cain comes along with his, his his fruit basket and the meat and cheese basket from Kittleburgers, and he brings it, and he sets it before the Lord with a plastic cellophane, a little bow, and a little note, too. Love you, Lord. And the Lord says, I can't receive it. What? After all that I've done. After all that I do? This is the, re- you know, no respect. Right? And so... <laughs> That is, And then Cain, because of his disobedience, his willful disobedience, and his rebellion. Then what does he do? He's jealous, he's envious. He raises up, kills his brother out of envy, out of rebellion, out of disobedience. These two, they've gone in the way of Cain. They've also ran greedily in the error of Balaam. What, what was Balaam's problem? It's recorded for us in Numbers 22 through 24. I would encourage you to read it. Balaam was a, a prophet for hire, and Balak, the king of Moab, comes to him as the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they're in the land and Moab is getting really nervous about it because they're seeing this huge dust cloud coming and it's just a couple million people. And So he, he gets a bunch of money together and he hires a prophet. Go get Balaam. And Balaam, all throughout the Bible, we see him as being one of these guys in his own heart. He was conflicted. He was divided One part of him, you know, he claimed to be something, and and yet there was this this sin of of the the love of money in his heart. And God dealt with him. And so there was rebellion in in, in the things of money, wanting money at others' expense. And we see these TV evangelists and these prosperity gospel ministers, they need to examine their own hearts because that's exactly what they're doing. They're following the way of, of Balaam. No, really, it's you know if you you know I won't even go there. I was I was about to go off on something, but I won't. So, in fact, Balaam not only was was a lover of money, but he also. And Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter two when he's writing his letter to the the church at Pergamos, He gives us what happened. It's not recorded in the in the in the scripture in the Old Testament. We know what happened in the Old Testament, but we don't know the, the cause of it. But evidently, Balaam, even though he wouldn't uh, curse the children of Israel, he uh, told Balak how to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to encourage them to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So these are things, too, that these apostates, these men, and even in our time, they, they, they hold to. They run greedily in the air of Balaam, and they also perished in the rebellion of Korah. Back in the Old Testament, just the rebellion against Moses. They rebelled against his authority. The Levites themselves. A portion of the Levites, rise up. Moses, why you put all this stuff on yourself? Hey, we're 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 Levites. You You should be doing something. We should have authority. And Moses just fell on his face. They didn't understand. And they were in rebellion. They were jealous of the authority that God had given him to lead the people. It causes strife. But notice in verse 12 it says, These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without without fruit, twice dead, Pulled up by the roots, and this speaks of fellowship. See these love feasts that the Christians at this time had, as they would get together and have uh, communion together after the resurrection of Christ. They 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 would get together and and have communion together, like we have communion together. And then afterwards, they would have what they call love feasts, where everybody would bring food, and they would just have a nice time. He says, but these guys will come into those feasts and they will pretend like they're something. They'll feign themselves as shepherds, but instead of feeding the sheep, they are only concerned about their own selves, feeding themselves and ripping them off. And the Bible says that we are not to fellowship with those who are enemies of the cross and yet feigning to be a believer, and especially someone who claims to be a believer, but who is an outright rebellion against God and his word. True fellowship, true koinonia can only happen between believers in Christ. To share the gospel with them? Yes, we are to do that. And for those outside of Christ, are we to go to them and minister to them? Absolutely. We are to be the messengers, the loving messengers, not going there to judge them, but to be a loving messenger to bring them. Yes, we're supposed to do that. But the Bible has some things to say about that in, in Corinthians, you know, not to be unequally yoked. You know, what, what concord does Christ have with Belial? Or what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? How, what agree, agreement has the temple of God with idols? And God says, come out from among them and be separate. These are believers who are, are not walking. You know, you come out from among them. And then Paul would also write to the Corinthians and speak to them that, you know, we are. It's in, it's in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Let me just read it to you. He says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to accompany with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then we must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such don't even eat with them. So in the first part of that, he's saying, you know, when you're going, if, if we weren't to minister to people, we, we'd have to go out of the world. Yes, you do go out and you talk to the fornicator. You do talk to the extortioner, the drunkard. You don't partake in what they do. You don't do the things that they do. You have to go and reach them, right? But when in the church, if somebody is in the church, and yet they're claiming to be a child of God, yet they're continuing in fornication, they're continuing in homosexuality, they're continuing in their drinking, they have to be talked to. And if their hearts are right, they'll repent, they'll turn, and they'll be restored. That's the way it ought to be. But if they continue to not turn, then we need to turn away from them. Pray for them that they would come back. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Jesus was harder with those who, who claimed to be a religious leader or claimed to be a believer and yet weren't living According to it, he wasn't, uh, he was harder with the Pharisees. Think of how gentle and kind he was to the woman at the well. This woman who was not involved in fornication herself. How kind and comforting was he to her? Very gentle, very, and she got saved. But yet he would say to the religious leaders, the ones who claim to be the representative, and he says, you guys are snakes in the grass. You're a child of hell. That's what he told them. Wow. He was harder with them. So it brings into sharp relief how we ought to be as Christians, to honor God, to honor Jesus, to live rightly, to represent him, to be the best ambassador that we can be. And this is what we need in church today is discernment. Over our own hearts first. We don't go around pointing fingers. I'll never forget a few years ago, there was a a man who came here uh, and I, I've met him a few times, and he claimed to be a believer. I had no reason to not believe it. He seemed really kind, and we talked, you know, and it sounded like he really knew everything, what we were talking about. And one day, he wanted, a, he wanted a, um, to lease or, or to be able to come in on a Friday night to, to use part of our building with another group. And um and I told him that we you know, I, I started getting a really funny check in my heart and this is when Pastor Jeff was still here and Pastor Jeff said, You talk to him, whatever the Lord shows you, right? So I started talking to him, I started to feel more uneasy, more uneasy, more uneasy and so finally he just asked point blank, Can we use the you know, that room down here at the end on a Friday night? And I said, Well our our teen group uh is in the building at that time and, and I and I said, You know what, I, I don't uh I'm sorry, we can't. And you should have seen his countenance change. He condemned me and the church. I mean, this guy who claimed to be a believer, it's almost like as soon as I said no, and he didn't get what he wanted, the countenance changed. Bink, bink, bink. The tail, I mean, the pitchfork shows up, got a red face, and I'm like, oh. I can't repeat to you what he said to me, how filthy it was. And the Lord just showed me, he goes, that's why I gave you the check in your heart. And that, to me, is like this. They claim to have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And they are just spots in your love feast. They are just blemishes. They're stains. This man needs to repent. Don't know what his motive was, but it wasn't good. And his heart certainly wasn't good. But they've missed their purpose. In fact, that's what the word perverted means. To look, in, in Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, he says, perverted is, uh, somebody who's turning right from wrong and distorted, corrupted, misinterpreted, or misemployed. And I like that. Misemployed. That's something where you're, 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 you're doing something that you weren't created to do. That's what perverted means. And that's what people are when we are apart from Christ. We become perverted. We've been misemployed. We're doing something else that God has not called us to. And what he's called us to do, those are the things we aren't doing. And that's what it means to be perverted. And that's what these men are. These apostates. They're spots. They have clouds They're clouds without water. A cloud has a promise of rain to replenish the earth, to bring in water so that the crops can grow. But these are clouds, but no moisture. There's no substance to them. That's what it is. They have an outward semblance of something good, but they never deliver on the goods. And they're carried about by the wind because they have no anchor. They're carried about, just floating around like a leaf leaf in a little whirlwind. You ever see leaves in the fall when that, on the corners and the leaves just, they get them in a circle and they just start flying everywhere. That's the way they are. There's no anchor to them at all. They have no anchor because Christ is not their anchor. And so everything is variable. Everything is, ah, eh, if it feels good, do it kind of thing. Ah, eh, if it works for you. They're fruit trees in the autumn. A fruit tree in the autumn should be loaded with fruit, but not these. Again, they have the promise. You see a fruit tree in the fall, you're expecting some really big beautiful crimson crisp apples. You don't see it. They don't deliver. They're empty. They're not bearing fruit. They're raging waves, foaming up their own shame. They're wandering stars in whom is reserved the darkness of blackness forever. Forever. You know, foam on, 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 on a on a beach is the result of impurities and algae in the water, and it starts to accumulate at the shoreline. That's what they are. They're impurities that have been sifted out, and they're just their life is filled with it. There's no nothing clean about them because they've been defiled. And they're a shooting star, they're wandering stars. There's no anchor to it. Most mariners and, and, and shipmasters in the old days they would they, they depended on the celestial bodies for direction on the on the waters. But these are like shooting stars. There there's no there's no stability, there's no fixed, there's nothing anchored. You get the point? And and they would look at those things and they know that there is Arcturus or whatever that is, and I know I need to go this many degrees this way and it's gonna take me over to the West Indies. <laughs> or wherever but a wandering star, one that just kind of is a shooting star that does nobody any good at all. And that's what they are. And he goes on and he says, "Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men saying, behold the Lord comes with 10,000s of his of his saints." And it's interesting, this actual quote is from is not in the canon of scripture, but is attributed to the book of Enoch, which we know is an apocryphal book, and just as I said before, this truth that is spoken of that Enoch has spoken of evidently is true. Even before the flood, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture, he spoke of the coming from, of Christ to the earth before the flood judgment. How long ago was that? Quite a long ways ago. He prophesied of an event that's still future to us, future to us. And either Enoch received this revelation from God or he quoted the truth of it from the book of Enoch, even though he wouldn't necessarily condone the entire book, and that's why it's not in the canon of Scripture. But he prophesied before the flood, and in verse 15, to execute judgment, to convict all who are ungodly, and this is what God is going to do, among all them of their ungodly deeds. This word ungodly is quite uh, fluent in this verse ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken. Who? Against who? Against him, against God. See, there's the problem. They've spoken against him. Never speak against God. You're on very thin ice when you speak against God. You can speak against anything else, but when you start speaking against him, you better uh, be careful. They spoke against him. In verses 16 through 18 below, we see that Jude is really quoting from 2nd Peter chapter 3, and you can just write down 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 because these next 3 verses are really come from Peter's epistle, and we're going to see that. And so he goes on and he goes these are grumblers, they're complainers. Isn't this really exciting to talk about on a Sunday morning? I don't know about you, but I'm just so uplifted. <laughs> No, it is It is uplifting in a different way because what it's doing is it's it's showing us the opposite of what we need to be and the things that we need to be careful of and see as much as God loves to give us the warm fuzzies and and the encouraging things and the love and the grace and the mercy and oh, we just like that. It's like eating ice cream. You know, we love those things but we also have to go through these things. These are grumblers. They're complainers. They walk according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words. In the in the Bible, there's a there's a place, and uh, I, I believe it's in Daniel, where it talks about the Antichrist or the Beast speaking great swelling words, and it's no different here. Great swelling words, just magnifying themselves in what they're going to do, flattering people to gain advantage. And these kind of people, these apostates, they, they, they curry favor with those in advantage. To the wealthy, they curry favor so they can be in their circles. And it's, you know, it's important for some people to be swimming in the same circles as those and hobnobbing with the rich and the famous and hanging out with people. You know, it's interesting that if you're, a, if you're an author of a book, an, an opera, read your book. You could be selling 100,000 copies on on a Friday. Oprah sends out a a tweet that she really liked the book that you wrote. The very next day, you're a millionaire.
0: I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Jude.